Diversity Rocks Innovation, Volume 16. My name is Jackie Steele, Canadian political scientist living and teaching in Japan and also the CEO and founder of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation Consulting. Enjoy is a Japan-based, global-facing uh, business working in English, Japanese, and even in French sometimes. And we support leaders and corporations in Japan to build out a diversity-positive workplace and an inclusive corporate culture. We know, and I think everyone who's joining today, knows that in fact, diversity rocks innovation. But there are certain conditions under which that holds true. And we're gonna get into that through this live stream. We are interested in basically showcasing why we think that inclusive innovation is what can amplify and support equality for the long game. And that can power our people processes, our people systems, not only for personal well-being, but also for the collective good, and of course, for the bottom line, which is what companies are all interested in, as well as, I think, showing up in terms of building legacy, as the corporate philosophy video hinted at. So this live stream is going to shine a spotlight on the very many Enjoy Diversity and Innovation thought partners in our thought partner network, and we're going to engage in a thought partnering out loud, an exercise where we just show up as two human beings and we throw away the business cards and we throw away the senpai kohai hierarchies of gender and nationality and age and race and all of that that sometimes can constrain our ability to just think out loud, ideate in solidarity and learn from one another. So I am very pleased to welcome today my guest for the volume 16 of Diversity Rocks Innovation, Darren Manavni. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for your time joining today, Darren. Hi, Jackie. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here finally after all this time and be having this great live interaction. We're looking forward to it. Yes, and I know you also teach it at IDEO, so I know that you know ideating is really something that you are very yeah. comfortable with and enjoying, and you're also in your teaching uh, at Globus, um, as well as in your actual career in many different hats. <laughs> so I'm really excited that you are a thought partner within Enjoy, and I certainly have learned tremendously, and I wanted to give a shout out to Junko Nagao in the United States who introduced yes, us. Junko, um, yes. Because it's really through that introduction that we as two Canadians in Japan managed to meet up and didn't know each other prior to that and then also learned that we're both in the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and uh, that's also been another excellent space of overlap um, that we didn't know about so yeah. thank you Junko for connecting the knots on that yes thank you Junko um, <laughs> I think um, I'm, I'm excited to have our listeners you know learn and experience uh, all the different insights that uh, you know I think you can bring to the table on so many issues but in particular Maybe we can get into eventually the idea of, you know, global remote teams and how to lead that and, and lead that with inclusion, right? And I think you're certainly leading the way on that piece. But before we dive into that sort of professional side, um, I would love for people to get to know who is Darren, the individual? Where did you start off uh, as a young boy growing up in Canada? And what have been the sort of facets of your identity and maybe the way you think about your own diversities uh, that you see as like pivotal markers or, or I guess the, the ways in which you frame your identity now. Um, yeah. They always have an origin. There's some origin <laughs> stories and foundational stories. So could you maybe first, uh, in, the, in the context of a self-introduction, maybe start with that. Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, um, let's even go before Canada because I was actually born in uh, the UK, in Northern oh. Ireland in okay. Belfast and um, for when I was four years old that's when my family moved to Canada moved to Toronto because of course not to age myself but in the late 1960s early 70s because of the troubles going on Belfast not the best place in the world to be raising a family so my parents said you know let's move to Toronto had some family connections there already and so basically I grew up in the suburbs um, of Toronto but you know, it's nice to still have the identity, that little bit of that you know British identity going on in the background. But I really would say, like you said, growing up in Toronto, growing up in Canada, that was such a huge formative part um, of who I am for, for a lot of dimensions. Um, you know, one of them, of course, is it was just fun growing up in the suburbs and having all this like free space and woods to play in, and um, this you know that freedom as a kid. But also, you know, growing up in, in the mid 1970s or 1970s in Toronto. You know, that was after I think the, um, you know, as, as an immigrant myself, but you know, I probably growing up in Toronto, half my classmates were also immigrants from different parts of the world as well. And so I think, you know, I've always in the back of my, it also seemed natural to me 
to be surrounded by people from very diverse backgrounds. That's just the environment I went to school in, I worked in, we'll talk about that later, but this has always been very natural to me. So I think, you know, the act of moving from um, a different country when I was very young, you know, four years old, but I still remember enough. I think I re that really helped me think bigger, 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 if that's the word, think more broadly about the world, because I was always thinking about, you know, I, my family in, uh, in Ireland is five hours ahead of us. So we're making phone calls. I'm always thinking about time zone differences and I'm five years old already. And, you know, and the fact that I did come from a different um, country and flew and I have very vivid memories of flying in the plane over the Atlantic yet here. So I think that always helped me think in terms of space and time very broadly. So that was one, I think, you know, definitely formative moment. And that's really helped, I think, you know, define who I am in terms of time and space and space will take a much bigger role later as well. And I, I think that's fascinating that of course, you know, this is obviously, you know, pre-internet boom and pre-everything going virtual and in the cloud and, and people really relating. But even in that process of, right, when we think back to people who had families and if they did immigrate and they did have families in other time zones and countries, you were, you were navigating that already in terms of a cosmopolitan, not maybe a full-on cosmopolitan view, but being conscious that there's more than what is in your own country and there's more than what is in your own surroundings and maybe cultural and national identity uh, surroundings. <clears throat> and then, yeah, just thinking through how you navigate to realize there's multiple time zones, even at such a young age, how, what a, what a, almost I feel like it's a foreshadowing for your current role, right? Really interesting. Um, yeah, that's a good point. To hear you yeah. say that. And, and so, yeah, and I mean, and then growing up in that kind of, again, going, you know, my elementary school, um, in, in virtually in, in Toronto, then the suburbs of Toronto, um, you know, again, all my friends and classmates are all from different parts of the world. And this just seems very natural to me um, as well. And, you know, growing up, I, I have a very vivid memory of, this is more in junior high school maybe, but like one of my friends invited all of our, our whole class to her Chinese New Year's party. And, and that was really fun, you know, I love food, so I'm gonna food. But I remember she said something like, yeah, and it, you know, it's the Chinese year, like 4,500 or something like that, like, wow. That just blew my mind in terms of the, we're in the future. Like, and then my other classmate said, well, in, in Hebrew, it's the year 5,500. Wow, even bigger. So, you know, it kind of, it gives you a due perspective and it kind of challenges your assumptions. And I think um, that's one of the great things about growing up in such an environment, having your assumptions challenged about what is common sense or, you know, or kind of the, the reality around you. And it just influences me. And again, thinking more broadly in terms, in lots of different dimensions, lots of different scales. Well, and I think, I mean, I know that certainly for me growing up, I mean, we didn't, my great grandparents immigrated, uh, you know, so when we would ask, and we, and, you know, all of my actually grandparents had passed away before I was born. So I didn't know any of my grandparents, let alone the great grandparents um, or the origin stories. And it was kind of, you know, handed down in bits and, and pieces, but generally the idea was that we were just sort of, you know, Canadian mutts in terms of coming from a bit of Eastern Europe, Hungary, Hungarian descent through my mom, uh, you know, and through Czechoslovakia, and then sort of through my dad, we think maybe somewhere in Britain, uh, but we're not really sure uh, exactly. Um, and, and there's a sort of ambiguity. So you, you don't ever really, we didn't really work, we didn't think about it. And given that we were obviously white Canadian living in a predominantly white neighborhood, but very multiculturally growing into like highly multicultural over the next 30 years, um, we didn't know where we came from. And uh, that's a privilege certainly to not have to worry about it and to not think about it and not have people ask, you know, where are you from, right? I yeah. mean, that's, there's, that is that sort of benefit that you get when you are in those, in those demographics in Canada. Um, but I think as you, as you rightly say, this idea that having those multicultural experiences of the people in my classroom too, that were, you know, of all different, you know, walks of life and different, you know, descent second generation, third generation, 10th generation, all mixed up and first generation, clearly. Um, you, you, in some ways, have to decenter your own experience as no That's longer being the yeah. norm. Like you're just yeah. not the norm and there is no norm that you can claim in that space. And although, you know, racism and sexism and homophobia all attempt to recreate, recreate who is the the normal citizen, um, and we and we still have those elements, you know, plaguing us as a society. 
at the individual interpersonal level, you sort of really do experience sociologically every single day that actually you're not the norm. And so I remember right. when I came to Japan and they would ask me, what's Canadian or what's Canadian food? And I'd say, I guess it depends on which family you're talking about and whether they're Chinese Canadian, Japanese Canadian, Indo-Canadian, British Canadian, French Canadian. Right. Can you define the question a little bit more, you know, more, more precisely because I can't really give you that easy answer. There's not sort of a quintessentially Canadian food. And I know that people say maple syrup, but can we move beyond that stereotype, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's true, our experience ends up being that kind of a dynamic of not having this one thing. We have a lot mm. of decentered, hopefully increasingly decentered and normalized experiences of the mosaic that um, are all equally Canadian, hopefully. And that's, I think, the, the homework we have ahead still, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, to work on that a bit. But yeah, so I mean, and that's, so that's you know, I, guess, I think a big part of who I am growing up in that kind of environment. And then as I got older, um, you know, I think about university, going to high school in the suburbs. Um, I always loved sci-fi and space. I remember when I was a kid, my dad let me use his binoculars he used for like, I think when he's out fishing and stuff. And when I, I and some summer, I, I looked up at the sky, at the stars, and I was like, wow, there's so much more out there. Again, back to this theme again. And so I think that kind of has always given me an interest in, you know, as I see those things, I'm always interested in things that are very far away, <laughs> whether that's travel or cultures or remote work or space, you know, and, I'm, and so, you know, I went to university, I ended up studying um, at University of Toronto, I ended up studying astrophysics. Um, um, so I got my bachelor's degree in astrophysics and, you know, that was also very formative because I was in my entire extended family, I was the first one to go to university out of, um, from both my parents' sides of the family as well. So when I graduated, my grandmother was so happy because I was the first one in the whole extended clan to, to make that, um, that leap as well. And so, you know, like I said, tying these things together, connecting the dots back, there is this element I've always been interested in things that are kind of gaps or distances or shrinking those gaps or whether that's knowledge or space or time. It's always been really kind of a fascination of mine, things that are very far away, literally or, or figuratively as well. So that takes us me to, I graduated from University of Toronto in 1990. And naturally the first thing you do when you have a degree in astrophysics is you go work for the tax office in Canada. It's a very logical career move as well. Um, so, you know, graduating into like a recession at the time, you know, career choices were limited. I originally wanted to work for the foreign service um, in, in the federal government. I had, I had an interest in that. In my, towards the end of my university degree, I became interested more, a lot more in social sciences, history, political relations, international relations. And so I got interested in that. I thought it'd be great to work in the foreign service, travel a bit, see the world. I wrote the foreign service exam, didn't make it to that. I got interviewed, but I didn't make it. But Revenue Canada tax office called me and said, you want a job? I said, well, I'll work there for a year or two. You know, maybe I'll go back to graduate school or whatever. It ended up being a 21 year career in the federal government in Canada. And um, it was nice because I was able to transition to other jobs where I was able to use my science background. So I ended up working in for a large part of my career in a, um, I was a good tax guy in the sense that I gave money back to people. So they liked me. So I was working in a research and development tax credit program. And, um, and, and there, you know, leading to something else, I, was, I had to give these present public presentations on this R&D tax credit program to like accountants and lawyers and um, you know it's kind of a boring topic tax policies but I really enjoyed standing you know I'm a bit of an introvert but I really enjoyed standing up there and talking to crowds of people around this topic and as I you know as I did and I got better and better at it, even though I hated public speaking but I really enjoyed it so you know that again is something that you know I kind of whatever reason I like having an audience and sharing information with people, sharing knowledge with people. I'm going to get a sense of that, giving these very boring tax program talks well, to suburban chambers of commerce, for example. Yeah. I, I'm, I find it interesting, and I want to pull on sort of two ideas that you've mentioned. One, I think it's so interesting that we kind of take for granted, I think, in Canada maybe, and maybe in other countries as well, having access to a university degree back in the day. And I think even in today, I mean, if you look at sort of the rates and access to not only undergraduate degrees, but higher degrees um, and how to build the knowledge economy and a skilled, right? A skilled workforce, highly, you know, multilingual and post-secondary graduate holding uh, the, the access to that undergraduate degree as a first get-go. And I think in Canada, we back in the day, they used to say that, you know, 80% of the university undergraduate degree was actually being subsidized through the taxpayer. 
And so we, like our generation, and I haven't looked up, you know, if that's vastly uh, shifted in the percentages, but we in terms of had a real inheritance from the public, you know, tax support system into all of the universities, that then we actually were only paying for about 20% of our four-year degrees in principle. Um, and that opens up obviously a lot of different possibilities for then, you know, second degrees and masters and whatnot. Um, and how that equal, not only does it change your ability to think about, you know, and you studied in astrophysics, but then we're also interested in could pivot that into other fields, but it gives an equalization of bringing up the level of the whole population in terms of a public infrastructure investment, right? That, that right, you get totally. a much yeah. higher educated population on average because more people are all graduating university degrees because it's it really lowers, I mean, that really lowers the bar to only cover 20%. Um, so I, I'm interested in how that sort of factor can be in it, particularly in an immigrant country like Canada, uh, if we don't really rectify those inequalities and make sure there's economic equality and higher degrees being gained and accessed yeah. by all different parts of Canadian society, including immigrant uh, immigrants to Canada, uh, we don't really leverage, I think, all of that tremendous uh, resource and, and yeah. wealth of I mean, population. It's, it's probably, it's definitely easier than a lot of other national countries to get into university in Canada, but that doesn't mean it's easy. For everybody who wants to and you know this is always the tragedy is who are the you know who's the person who's going to develop the next great medicine or technology or write the next great opera or novel but they can't get into university right and this is something that i think a lot of countries struggle with i hope we're doing a bit better at that in canada with some some you know government support but um you know like everyone else we've got a long way to go i think before we're we're there exactly exactly but it is i think such a huge public infrastructure like you say um for the foundational, like the foundational mm -hmm. pieces and the building boxes, we all need to have that next stepping stone. And particularly with multilingualism being so strong, given the, the immigrant base and the different levels of multilingualism, right? And more in the immigrant Canadian population than perhaps in the traditional, uh, you know, British descent Canadian populations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and certainly different levels in the First Nations communities too, amidst that diversity. But yeah, I think in terms of how do we leverage, how do we think about that in terms of economic and global talent management, which I think yeah. we're gonna talk about later yep. as well. And we'll get into that. But my other question I was gonna say, you think taxes are boring? Oh my goodness, I think taxes, so, <laughs> I think tax law is so fascinating. And the reason why I say that, well, now there I are do. so many, yeah. now you do, right? There are yeah. so many ways that the tax system incentivizes inequality and or can be used to incentivize mm. Yeah, empowerment yeah. and economic equality and like a level playing field. And I remember being brought into um, a, a scholar, one of the feminist scholars in Canada's presentation about how tax law was really, you know, and how we were delineating the household revenue and how you declare, you know, two income earning mm -hmm. prior to eliminating the breadwinner model in Canada and taxation on that basis. We didn't really have a structure for individual taxation. And so it really was reproducing gender-based roles and norms by disincentivizing women to work and earn to their maximum capacities, right? And until we yeah. finally shifted away from that breadwinner model. And I know we, that's still a pain point in Japan, very much so in terms of the tax system really incentivizing in all the wrong ways, the reinforcement of, of patriarchal gender roles in the family. So I just thought that blew my mind when I thought, I thought taxes were boring. And then I heard that presentation, I went, wow, like the things that you can do with statecraft and a taxation system to incentivize certain kinds of behaviors. So can you just maybe give me a, a little, and give our listeners a little insight. Is there something that you found that was the most exciting tax area or incentive that you got to work on during that 20 years in the federal government? Well, well yeah, like it, it was only about eight or 10 years was in this, this R&D tax credit program. But I mean, I get back to the word incentivizing. This is really what it was all about. I know it's a bit off topic, but governments shouldn't probably not pick which companies are the winners and losers and fund them. But this is a, you know, a program that's open to anyone who's doing, broadly speaking, research and development in Canada, Canadian companies doing that. Um, you're eligible for it. You could get 35% cash back from the government on your R&D expenses. That's, you know, and a lot of our peer competitors, US or the, or the EU were doing the same thing. So it was also a way to lure for FDI. So I was sometimes would give um, talks in the program with the Ontario government, for example. When they're giving a presentation to um, you know um, representatives from the local um, consuls in Toronto 
to help them understand like the console of whatever countries help them talk to their people saying hey you know if you come to ontario you can get this 20 35 percent um, R&D credit on eligible work. Of course, not. It's not a cash grab, right? There is some. There's other rules to it. So I think that was great to see how that was able to lead to some really good innovation and development in Canada. So I think that you know that's the example of a very good way to use a tax program as well. Um, it is. It is very. It is very neutral. It, it's the, the credit was based on just the merits of the work you did. That was it. So if you if you met the rules and the rules were a bit you know Byzantine to figure out all the intricacies, but if you did those. You know, then you were you were in, and um, I think we helped really then support a lot of innovation in Canada and employment in Canada by the same time as well. So you know, it's you know, yeah, maybe not, maybe not boring is the right word, but it's not it's not the thing that maybe you know, it's a good way to, to reading the text manuals a good way to fall asleep, maybe is a way to put it. But but yeah, but I did that, and then I just and, then, and I had a career change in the government. I moved to um, um, I wanted to do a bit more something different. But, but staying in this R&D, I really enjoyed working in this R&D ecosystem in, in Canada and Ontario and Toronto specifically. And that was in the late, early 2000s, when I think um, after the dot-com bubble crash, then we had the rebound and there was more money coming back into startups and entrepreneurship. And so there are a lot of organizations in Toronto who were pushing that and we, I worked with them. And one thing led to another, I got a new job working in the government, this time in the defense department, working at an R&D center. And I was in charge of business development for the R&D center and technology licensing. So bringing in revenue, I was the profit center. We have absolutely no public sec private sector experience. I was in charge of profit for an R&D lab. So that's kind of a fun thing. And so this ties into later developments because you know, I always thought, you know, I really enjoyed it, but I always thought I wasn't quite, I was missing something about, you know, I didn't have the right background, I think to be doing the job as well as I could. I really enjoyed it. It was nice working at a bit of a global stage now as well, because I was working with um, universities in different countries or licensing technologies overseas, things like that. Um, so that, but you know, but then after about 18 year mark in the government, you know, it's comfortable. It's, but it's, there's, it's a bit limiting in a sense, I thought, right? I was, you know, working now in a more of business focused in private sector focused role. I was studying a lot more about business and listening to more podcasts on the drive to work every day. And I thought, you know, one day I'd like to get an MBA. Wouldn't that be great? And kind of up my business skills that way, which takes us to 2010. And my dream finally comes true. And I get to work for the Foreign Affairs, Department of Foreign Affairs, now of course called Global Affairs Canada, but back then really? DFATE, Department of Foreign Affairs. I totally remember yes. when it was called DFATE. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so back in the DFATE days, um, I, uh, you know, I, ha I had some dealings with DFATE in my, in my, in my role in, uh, in defense, but um, the G20 summit came to Toronto right. in oh, 2010 right. and, and, it was a, it's a big event. So, you know, within the federal government, a call was for volunteers to work in the G20 summit. I thought now, that would be cool. So I raised my hand, um, got interviewed, and I got stuck in the delegation of Japan for the G20 summit and the G8 summit okay. as well. Back then it was G8. Russia, Russia was in back then. It was the G8, right? right so right. Um, so there was a team of three of us working at the G8 and the G20 summit as, as delegation liaison to the Japanese delegation. So that was a very interesting, very cool experience. Um, you know, I would find myself in the elevator, me, the prime minister of Japan and the bodyguard, and we're going to meet President Obama, for example, right? I have the little secret radio in my ear, like I'm whispering into my sleeve, like in the spy That's movies. Awesome. Isn't that cool, right? That is I'm awesome. riding in the limousine with the flashing lights around and everything, <laughs> there's a motorcade. Um, and it was a great, and I really thought, I thought this is such a, this is the experience I could never get anywhere else work except for working really in, in government as well. Such a wonderful experience. Therefore, it's time to quit. And on a high note, I thought, I thought now it's time maybe to make this, this, this shift. And also working in such a, a global event, literally, I, I wanted to work on a higher like global stage, I thought as well, right? So I thought, okay, time to get the MBA. Don't get the MBA in Japan, I mean, Canada, Get the, I have this Japanese connection, moved Tokyo, get the MBA, which is what I did. So I came to Tokyo in 2011 to get my MBA. Famously, I arrived here March 13th, 2011, two days after the tsunami and earthquake. And so that was a bit of a, of a welcome to Japan as well. But I but came here, stayed here. And so I moved here basically to get the MBA and to get the MBA at Globus Business School. And I took Why a two-year unpaid leave from my government job, basically, to do that as well. And what was you mentioned in passing that you because you had a japan connection you thought you would opt for I, I, yeah, and family, and connect, family connection here I've been, i visited many times 
but I also wanted to live here really, right? Um, okay. And experience, and so I wanted to get the MBA, but not an MBA in Canada. So Japan was kind of a logical choice. So came here for that purpose as well. And you've With been to knowing, Japan I've been to Japan before, right? Many, many times. times. Yeah, so I, and I, always, was, I always enjoyed visiting and I wanted to, um, you know, try, you know, living in Canada, Toronto is nice. Let's try something different as well. And at the same time, get, get you know, upgrade my, uh, my skill set as well. So that's basically what brought me here. And 2011, 2013, I did the MBA, part-time MBA while working part-time. I did various different jobs here um, in, in Japan as well. And so I guess, and then that really helped me realize back to my previous points around, I had this real passion. I realized for teaching and training and sharing information. That's what I had an inkling of when I was doing these, these tax talks um, back in, in, the, in 10 years prior. And so I realized, you know, being back into the university, back into a, a learning environment after like almost a, over a 25 year gap between my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, me MBA, I wasn't quite sure I would do it, but I realized quickly I loved it. I loved being in this learning environment, soaking up knowledge. And then sometimes, you know, leading discussions. I really like getting up and being the one at the whiteboard, sharing with the class. Okay, our group decided this, blah, blah, blah. And then having the debate with the other classmates. It really was enjoyable. And so, um, and then as I was finishing my MBA here in Tokyo of Globus, um, I had, I'd done some corporate training a little bit with Rico, company limited via Globus. They wanted some um, of the English language MBA students to come and work with their staff at Rico to kind of give some training on like, you know, how to work globally for lack of a better word to globalize some sales and marketing stuff and they really liked my sessions he said are you interested in working for us to help us take this and I said why not right I mean I'm here I like to stay in Tokyo so one thing with another and so shortly after I graduated from Globus in in May of 2013 I ended up working started working for Rico from July of 2013. Wow and I mean maybe you can talk me through a little bit I can imagine I mean, arriving in Japan post, uh, you know, Daishinsai, post triple disaster is, is a, not an easy, not, a, not an easy pivot, uh, I think. And I think Japan was also going through, you know, reeling from the effects of that and still is in some ways in, in Tohoku. Ten years later, um, was there also a decline all of a sudden in the enrollment in the MBA program you were in and, and there were fewer foreigners staying in that program because they ah, were right, ways, uh, exiting. What was the context that you sort of experienced as a result of the impact on the I economy? Some, and then also the, yeah, the I, I think we, we, I think we may have had one or two fewer foreign students coming to Japan for the program, but, and they might have, but they might have deferred it to the next year, but it, it didn't have a major impact. Um, as I recall, a majority of the students, so the, the MBA program basically, you know, it's, it's probably 50% Japanese students, 50% non-Japanese. Back then there was, it was just a part-time MBA program. So, you know, 50% non-Japanese were mostly people who were already established. Um, you know, like someone like yourself, who's, you know, living in Tokyo for a while, living in Japan for a while, has maybe a job or business here, they would join the MBA program. Very few of us, it was me and myself, um, two classmates from Thailand, one from Malaysia who came, that was it from outside Japan for, for that program as well. And, um, and you know, it, you know, it had it really the color, of course, my, my first experiences living in Japan. I do all remember volunteering to go up to um, Rikuzen Takata to do some work um, a few months later as well and, and speaking with that. And, you know, it also gave me, I think, a bit of resilience for living in Japan as well. Like, you know, after moving and living through all that stuff, especially, you know, just after the aftershocks and with the, um, you know, the nuclear scares, you know, life is pretty good. It's all going to be better after that, right? It's much more comfortable living here as well. So it didn't have a big impact on the enrollment, but it did color maybe what we talked about in our discussions in the MBA program and like, you know, maybe what could we do as students to help entrepreneurship and to hope, for example, things like that. That's one of the things I worked on when I was a, uh, an MBA student as well. And I suppose it might have even also trickled into discussions on how do we rethink economic resilience in the context of, you know, these kinds of huge external shocks and natural disaster shocks, yeah, but right. also, also, I think, paired with that, the, the quiet shock that we've had, I think, now of the declining birth rates and aging society phenomena for 30 years mm -hmm. as a yeah. quiet phenomena that we've you know, known was coming and is coming and has been now, you know, chronic for 30 years. And that is gradually creating a boiling point in terms of a shock on the on the economy that Japanese companies are particularly feeling. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and 
um, you know, people say the labor market in Japan is quite inflexible or there's not, there's not a lot of labor mobility. I think that's changing now. And, you know, and I think that might have been, you know, one of the shocks led to it. But I can, we might talk a bit more about this later in, in remote work. But um, yeah, it was great to, so, you know, this is great because I learned a bit about also Japanese business culture, corporate culture, which really helped me when I moved to working in Rika. And it was interesting because I always draw parallels between working in the federal government and working for a big Japanese company. They're both oh. jobs for life. They're both very hierarchical and they have like low risk tolerance. So there's kind of, there was, was in some ways it was an easy jump to make from a culture perspective Interesting. Well. Yeah. It's true. We, we, and I, and I think that's an interesting thing that I've also been grappling with since pivoting out of, you know, my political science academic track uh, mm. and really focusing on global talent mobilization and supporting companies because the things that we traditionally in Canada would say about government, it's, it's a big institution. Like you say, it's rigid. There's a lot of protocols and rules because they're attempting to maintain high ethics and avoiding conflict mm -hmm. of interest. And so there's all right. of the, you know, the safety mechanisms around ethics and governance and oversight. And that leads to a heavier process that takes longer, but it also, I think, makes for a more rigorous process. But it's right. often contrasted to kind of the wild and free rolling private sector that can just do what it wants and pivot and is agile. And yet many big, large corporations also in North America are equally bureaucratic and have all their protocols and their rules right. and their oversight and, and the ethical you know, elements and yeah. the multi-stakeholder engagement rules they have to um, comply with particularly around First Nations and I mentioned that because we just had our Canadian Chamber of Commerce right. uh, Indigenous Engagement panel this morning around understanding you know what does multi-level governance in Canada mean in terms of understanding the relationship building with First Nations and understanding treaty implications and understanding provincial government jurisdictions and federal government and how to work across all those different sectors. Yeah. There's a lot of you know constraints in both private sector and public sector but we don't give that impression right the, the discussion is that the private sector is so agile and efficiency oriented and the government is so inefficient and is a waste of tax dollars and that very sort of neoliberal like rhetoric we've heard for almost I think 20 years now in Canada in particular. And then I look at the Japanese market and I think about the big Japanese companies or the big multinationals. And I think there's a lot of layers in those companies yeah. in terms of constraints and bureaucracy and yeah. mechanisms and protocols that also yeah. means it's not such a freewheeling private sector all the time in all companies we really have to be thinking about maybe the small medium you know tech companies are, are you know 50 people or 100 people and they're agile and they don't have that level of, of, yeah. of you know red tape if you will but that's not all companies right and so like you say that i think that's so interesting that your pivot of course <laughs> out of from federal government to a large japanese corporation really was quite seamless on that front because you're strangely used to those so protocols. yeah yeah, and, and I mean, and I think, you know, I mean, they're, of course, they're not, it's not apples to, to apples, but I mean, something just remembered what you said about the, the kind of these um, protocols and rules in the federal government. You no, know, I always, you know, I was always proud of these things, the fact that, like, we had to have everything in two languages, you know, it, now it could slow things down, but, you know, it's it's part of who we are, right? Um, we did have to consider when we do contracts, things like, yes, we have to, you know, let's look also at, at this for, you know, Aboriginal businesses, for example, look at some contracts um, for Aboriginal businesses. These are good things. And it also reflected in the, um, in working in HR now, in RICO, working, the, the talent development and the recruiting process was the epitome of meritocracy. You know, you can only advance in your career um, it doesn't matter who you know. It's not going to make a difference um, in getting ahead in, in, in getting ahead in government. It's based on being qualified, writing the tests, doing the interviews, blah blah blah. You know, it really is a very merit meritocracy. It is a quite meritocracy, and that's why I always like, be, you know, being able to know that there is a steady career path there. It's slow, but it, it's steady there, and it is really based on merit more than anything else. So, um, nature of the beast. But um, I I will always defend government if anyone says. Lazy government workers, hey! Mm. Let me. I'll, I will always defend um, Canadian government at least because I know that, right? Because right. I think you know your stakeholders are. I was concerned. Who are my customers? Well, thirty-five million Canadians. That's kind of who I'm. Who I'm working for. It's very Who's easy cares? to feel a sense. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very easy to feel a sense, or or, or not tax-paying people, but yeah, but it's as well. So it always give. It was very easy to feel a sense of purpose, mission, and belonging, working in. In such, a, in such a role. And that's very important, of course, for feeling 
motivated, engaged in, in work, um, something which now I'm realizing working with employee engagement now. And maybe if you could uh, shift a little bit towards then how your role at RICO from doing these uh, trainings a little bit uh, in the beginning, but then also having this full-time position um, and how that has, I, I think, expanded particularly through COVID to an even more, uh, you know, future of work type of framework that now yeah. you're also developing and are teaching on. Um, so maybe you could walk us through those, those shifts yeah. as well, that pivot. I think so I was originally hired to as a project lead for um, employee engage global employee engagement survey, and um, I didn't have I had very little HR background. The only HR really had was how to write a job description when I worked in the government and some staffing, and what I learned in the MBA HR courses as well. Um, but Rico said, "But we think you know we think you can lead this project and and pick up the HR stuff, learn that on the job." So that's it's a very positive attitude as well, right? You know, to think that um, again very overtly traditional Japanese company would hire a non-Japanese speaking former government worker into their program, you know, and not young as well. <laughs> That's, you know, it's a very, it's a very good sign, I thought, of, of the company culture as well. So, um, so yeah, I, I led the first global employee survey, 95,000 employees we surveyed, boom, great. But that led me, that gave me a much better grasp of how to lead a global project, how to understand the importance of, you know, cultural differences, you know, time zone I already knew about, but, but understanding how to um, understand the different ways of leading and managing across um, borders and across time zones and across, you know, I like to use now in my own teachings, you know, geographic distance is one dimension and social distance is the other dimension, right? And how to, how to lead across those. And we often focus on the geographic distance, which includes time, but it's the social distances that we feel from different cultures, different ways of working, power distances, whether that's real or perceived. These are the things that really, I, I really learned a lot about leading that project as well. And um, so my career shifted a bit over time. I still look after employee engagement. We just did our last sur second survey last year. And, but I think this really has um, helped me find kind of a niche or a specialty or kind of like my own personal brand around these global, leading global teams, leading cross-cultural teams, um, understanding how the, that dynamic affects how um, corporations or even individuals can be more effective on these kind of global teams. So, um, you know, then luckily a year or two after I began working at Rico, Globus, where I got my MBA, said, hey, would you like to teach a course for us? We remembered you love giving presentations in the, uh, in the MBA class and we, we want someone to teach the presentation course now. Sure, why not? And that was an unexpected treat as well. Um, I never, in, you know, Never in my life would have imagined I would be a business school professor, but here I am seven years later, you know, as a full professor teaching several courses at Globus. And one of the course being this course I created myself called um, Innovation Through Virtual Teams. And we created it three years ago. It was very prescient. It was ready a year ago, when suddenly the enrollment shut up <laughs> after COVID hit on this course, because it was a course we created three years ago about, you know, what, what I do in my job to a certain extent, how to lead virtual teams global virtual teams, but there's a cross-cultural element and how to get innovation and creative value out of those teams as, as an output. And I'm teaching that for the third time currently right now. I, I love it because I was able to create the entire course content myself, three month MBA program, 18 hours of content, using case studies from Harvard, using my own experience, using simulations online, um, you kind of, kind of show the kind of tools we can use online as well. So focusing on the technology element, I like this very cheesy framework I created called TLC, technology, leadership, and culture. Those are the three real levers you have to control, to, to influence, I should say, the effectiveness of any kind of global team. So that's kind of the framework we, we frame the course around. Technology is the short, the smallest part actually, because you know, technology is only as good as how you use it and how well people are using it to facilitate or lead. So we, you know, we hear about we hear about Zoom fatigue a lot. That's not that's not Zoom's fault. It's just people like we used to hear about death by PowerPoint. PowerPoint's not bad. PowerPoint's actually pretty good. People just use it the wrong way, and so people are using Zoom just in the wrong way or not facilitating properly or having endless Zoom meetings. It's not Zoom's fault. It's it's the human side kind of, of things. Killing kind of killing the medium. I mean, if we take the board yeah. from the killing the messenger, it's killing the medium. It is the, right. It's, it's not yeah. the medium's fault. Yeah. No. And I would love to hear you talk and maybe show tell us a little bit more. I mean, I love this idea, and certainly like you're speaking my language when I think about all of the you know diversity and inclusion innovation conversations mm -hmm. that enjoys trying to build forward 
it's really about and and we were very I was very conscious in choosing the D and the I to be diversity and innovation because really I think there's a there's a mechanism that's not being broken down and and really articulated to show diversity can be a driver of innovation we know that but there are certain conditions under work that under which that right. holds true and there's a yeah. whole bunch of way you can screw that up and and diversity does not spontaneously lead to innovation and certainly the TLC approach that you just mentioned kind of is case in point that if you don't have leadership and you don't take care of your culture elements, if you don't take care of the social distance and particularly the power difference in the room, um, then you don't necessarily um, obviously have mm -hmm. that virtuous cycle. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit more about your definition? I know that social distancing in a COVID era has been different meaning. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been used in kind of an unfortunate way because it's not yeah. really social distancing. It's physical. They want, we're, supposed is, physic, we're supposed to be physically distanced, but not yeah. socially distanced. And so this term is actually not accurate. And I think it was Daniel Eldridge who, who commented that, that we actually want social proximity, right? <laughs> to continue, yeah. but we want physical distancing, right? Um, from a crisis perspective, crisis management perspective. But um, in your context of, you know, what you see as managing social distancing or social distance and in particular power distance. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. You're speaking my language. I'd love to hear you speak more about that. So, you know, to tie it all back to, to, to innovation, to kind of, you know, if, if we consider that kind of an output or, or an output or a process is debatable, but you know, you want to be able to create something. Um, when, you, when you put people together, that's the whole point of having a, kind of, I think of why we work, whether that's private sector, public sector, academia, whatever, that's the purpose. Um, innovation has a high risk of, of failure. Um, it's, it's never a done deal. And, there's, and so you're never going to have innovation unless you have that environment where it's okay to, you know, psychological safety where it's okay to fail. And of course that is based a lot on, on trust. Um, but I think tr how you build trust in a remote environment can be very different, especially a global team is very different because each culture builds trust in very different ways. You know, like if you does relationship, cognitive trust or emotive trust, it, it varies even to the individual level as well. So ultimately to, for to any team especially a remote, a global virtual team, GVT, I call it, to be innovative, you've got to work on that understanding of how the people on the team operate as individuals in their context. You know, back to the point about dropping your common sense. How does person A on my team who works over here in this part of the world, how do they understand trust and build trust with me? And how am I going to build trust with them and the other members of the team? Without that trust and the psychological safety, you're not going to get the innovation. And, and, and so it's, it's awareness of what is the social distance dynamic at play between a team leader and the people in the team. I hate the word subordinates. So the team leader and the people in the team and the people working horizontally um, or you know, working um, holistically, I guess, I guess, in the team as well. How do you understand that? Unless you, without understanding that, you're not gonna, you, know, you're, you may succeed by accident, but you can't be intentional about how you're planning the work. You know, so person A over here works best um, heads down person B over here works best in a kind of common collaborative environment. You know, knowing these things about the people that you're working with um, will help you structure the work better. And time zone differences maybe can go away. If you know you find the people in your team, some of them are, are evening people, some of them are morning people, well then suddenly, hey, they're, they're gonna work together no matter what the time zone differences are maybe if you can schedule things properly as well. Well, and I, I think Hearing you speak, it's interesting because, of course, uh, one of the core elements that we're, we've been rolling out for now two years is this concept of intersectional thinking. And it's really mm -hmm. build, building on Canadian public policy and legal expertise um, around how we do policy analysis in Canada. Um, and it's really thinking through the multiplicity of intersections or identities and, yeah. and social situation, the contextual background that forms each individual and the power differentials that also are functioning in the background of society at a systemic level and all of that intersecting all of those different identities of course frames and helps shape who each individual not only becomes but how they self-perceive and how mm -hmm. others perceive them right. and so it's a really relational context and so trying to we're doing workshops um, and we've been leading workshops on helping you know global leaders think intersectionally and use this Canadian business and public policy high performance nice. tool, right? Yeah. Because it really works really well in Canada in the way it's being practiced in, um, you know, social movements are using it. Certainly it's come out of feminist legal scholarship and feminist public policy, but it's really had an amazing penetration that our local governments, I mean, the, the city of Vancouver committed to doing uh, intersectional gendered analysis of everything that comes through city hall 
in Vancouver. Wow. The federal government recommitted, um, they started with a gender-based analysis commitment in 1997, I want to say, or 1995. And now they're doing a full-on commitment to intersectional analysis at the federal level as well for all facets of these intersecting identities of, of um, diversity. And so we've had, I think, amazing rollout over the last 20 to 25 years at different levels in Canadian corporations, in the local governments, in the federal government, and in social justice movements to build kind of competence in this practice mm -hmm. and this critical thinking skill. And it is more work in the sense that like you suggest, it means actually understanding the individual, taking it's, time yeah, to slow down work. and say, yeah. what is this person beyond the fact that I want to put them in the in the in the girl box and in the in the Canadian box and in the gaijin box or in the you know queer box? Can we move beyond putting people in the boxes and saying, I don't care who you are and, and leave your park your identities when you come through the door and just be a salary woman or a salary man and just that's your only identity when you walk through the door. Can you just hang up that code of everything else, you know, of yeah. your humanity? Can you just like park that at the door, your gender, your everything else? Because we don't really want to manage that messiness. We don't talk about it or deal with it. Just park it at the door and then just be a salary woman or a salary man and, and work like a dog. And I think we can no longer do that, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work, but it does take a lot more intentionality and yeah. flat, flat relationship building to say, I'm actually going to care enough as a manager to know who my staff, who my people are, and to know who's on my team and what their individual strengths are and preferences are, and how that can be really leveraged for the organization. And then when you see all of the strengths and maybe the vulnerabilities, because yeah, we can really leverage that, but then maybe there's this vulnerability that this other teammate, they can have, they can cover those blind spots because that's their sweet spot. That's their zone of genius, right? right? Exactly. And you get full yeah. coverage. The complementary skill sets and mindsets and behaviors across yeah. the team that's gorgeous but you got to know those things about your people right one thing i uh, i i i include in the in the course but also i i've done with my colleagues at rico is there's a, a really one of my favorite books on cross-cultural communications and business is the culture map by aaron meyer and there's an online tool that lets you evaluate yourself using the culture map framework all my mba students take that and then we plot it on a map of their class. And I, usually, I always contrast it with this, what the score would look like if we just took all the countries in the class. And, they, and everyone says, oh, I learned I wasn't very Japanese from this, or I didn't learn, I wasn't very Thai. Great, that's the whole point, right? And then when you see all the individual scores, it's, you know, you see like, you know, who's high context to low context communicators, there's a huge range. And that's how you see yourself as a group, not from not as someone who is from Nepal, Thailand, Japan, Canada, wherever. It's this range of behaviors. And so, you know, tying tying into the point around um, remote work, I think we have to and diversity. We have to understand the work style diversity um, of our teams and individuals and ourselves. Now, you know, how do we work best? Um, some people just love remote work, like me, because we work better at it. Some people don't, but you know, knowing that and knowing you know, will help you how well your, your colleagues or your team members work remotely, um, understand their work style, and then using that to structure maybe the teams or the projects or the work, then you can harness a diversity more effectively of your individual team members by looking at their different styles of work, which ultimately is just a behavioral um, diversity. You know, Some people are more, again, collaborative. Some people are more creative when their head's down. Some people, um, are more confrontational others. Confrontation is not always bad because innovation comes from confrontation. You know, sometimes, the, you know, understanding all these different dimensions or intersections, as you said, can help you create a much more cohesive global team, project team, cohesive trust, psychological safety, and that's how you're going to get the innovation at the end of the day. And I'm going to circle back to the beginning of our conversation in, in terms of maybe you know, when we first talked uh, last year, I felt such a sense of alignment with your thinking and vision. And I thought it's so interesting that increasingly I've been finding more Canadians in, I guess, the greater Tokyo area that because I was mostly in the regional parts of Japan, I didn't really run into that many Canadians. But as I ran into more Canadians, I was finding there was a certain experiential foundation that seemed to be quite similar in terms of just an a presumption that there was a decentering mm. of themselves as not being the only possible form of humanity out there or the only possible walk of individuality out there. And so there was in a sense a, a foundational 
openness and curiosity and um, just seeing diversity as that positive because yeah. it's something we'd grown up with. It's something mm -hmm. that surrounded our reality and became a source of who we were and how we self-identified maybe too in terms of not putting ourselves in a box. Um, but in terms of how we then, I think the challenge for, if we can bring it back to the conversation on Japanese global companies from a competitive edge perspective in the global market, companies, and I would say that's also including companies in North America and Europe, frankly, but not having a cookie cutter approach to how do you do your work? What is the, yep. how do you do your work? How do you show up as an individual human? What is right? Like if there's no wrong way to be a human, right? So, I mean, it's, I mean, unless you're, you know, violating the law and, and being violent, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, beyond that, like, can we get to a point where we really can have an open heartedness towards the full, the full spectrum and, and the full range of individuality and humanity that is right and understood yeah. to be right. And then decentering any kind of hegemonic norm or presumption about stereotypical behavior that is the right way to do things and yeah. not having, and I think the, the next piece is the laws and policies, the rules, right? All the rules in the bureaucracy of these yeah. companies or HR or wherever they sit, all of those rules need to decenter towards really placing and that's what we're trying to say is build a diversity positive environment means you're decentering that yeah that really toxic norm and assumption and stereotype about this is the that way there's to be, one way to, to show do up to things and be, yeah, a, exactly. be right you know to yeah. be a good salary woman or a good salary man means to work x numbers of hours and productivity equals x or y and yeah. we're really trying to decenter and to put diversity and diversification of that individuality at the heart of it of the dna of that that company's processes people's uh, thinking and also I think the the corporate culture and I think you're doing that in a really beautiful way with your leading global teams virtually uh, leadership and, and thought leadership on that and I hope we need to bring you into the Canadian Chamber to also probably <laughs> do a talk about that that would be really fun yeah, great uh, for the global global diversity management committee you know that would be uh, I think a, a certain sweet spot for definitely including that perspective and I want I'm tempted to ask you what is the sweet you know this the, the special sauce in how you're teaching that uh, without wanting you to give it away, because I know it's what you teach at Globus, but is there an, a hint you could give us to what's the, the secret well, sauce? I mean, I, I think it comes down, so tying everything together, and this point about, you just made this great point, you just made around rules and process, um, for the future of work will be remote work one way or the other. We're not sure it's going to be 100% remote or it's going to be hybrid work, but um, companies that won't let their employees do that they're going to lose out on the talent game in the end because people, even in Japan, majority of people want to work in some form, not maybe every day of the week, but some form of remote work. And so to do that, you've got to structure your company and your HR processes and your managers, especially differently. You have to have a much higher level of, back to the point about trust, autonomy, give a high level to autonomy to your workforce. So that, that means things like process, is secondary to outcomes, which is can be very hard in some Japanese companies where process is king, right? Um, but you know, let people do the work the way that they work best. You know, first they might not know that yet, but we can help them understand in that themselves. And then just look at the outcome, which what we're getting as well. And because we're working remotely now, well, we can look. We can, our teams can be more globally diverse. You know, I think um, what hasn't been appreciated yet is with um, a move to remote work with technology advancements like ability to better, you know, but better AI translation, our, 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 our competition, each of us as individual workers is global very soon because we're competing with people around the world now because we can work remotely, we can work virtually and with technology lowering the, the language barrier that goes away as well. So I think the companies that can, you know, that can focus on giving choice about when, where, how to work um, can bring in the, that global talent as a consequence of that and focus more on um, outcomes than process and giving up time to the workers. They're the ones that are going to win the talent race. And when you have the, the people who are happy or more engaged, engaged workers are more innovative, are more creative as well. It all comes back to that. So I think if we're able to um, convince our employers or even ourselves bottom up begin doing this you know, in our own work, our own workplaces, we will see a bit of a nice revolution. Um, and maybe companies will not be considered to be Japanese so much anymore, just a company headquartered in Japan, as opposed to a Japanese company.
and you're echoing a conversation I had with Brian Sherman in an earlier live stream. So I'm gonna I have to introduce you to because I think it's a, a common area. And I think it's interesting, this idea that we would trust the local and trust the individuals in the teams to actually innovate and find those best ways of working together. And that trust, I mean, we think about Canadian federalism being born of this desire and necessity in a huge country, you know, at Mariuskad Mari, a huge geographical mm. distance to be governed from, you know, Britain. And eventually the decision to say, we need to put into place a, a practice of home rule. And yeah. that philosophy was that they were going to, in some ways, devolve responsibility for those decisions to the colonies that were then the British colonies that eventually became Canada to make sure that there was self-government. And then there was the struggle for self-government and Canadians wanting to decide for themselves if they were paying taxes, they wanted to have their own representation yeah. locally with their own people. And it's really, I see this interesting kind of process of democratizing in our internal processes, albeit in a private sector environment, but seeing that trusting to the local and trusting yeah. to the people and the actors who are the stakeholders in the first and foremost affected and letting them be a part of that self-government rule decision-making. But I think at the HR level, so fascinating to think about what global companies will need to do if you wanted to harness the global talent around the world and say, we don't care where you live, we will offer you healthcare coverage, we will offer you all of these kinds of benefits if you're living in Bulgaria, if you're living in Sweden, if you're living in Tokyo, yep. if you're living in Nova Scotia, Canada, this is our benefits package. You are the best talent that we think would be great for our company. Live where you wish to live. We'll figure out when there needs to be in person, if it's a hybrid yeah. dynamic for the role the that tax roles, it. tax laws or whatever, but yeah. Right. So then think about how HR processes and how companies then need to think through and across the national borders and the tax systems and the healthcare yep. systems. That's a really exciting, uh, in terms of thinking about the future of work and all of the policy and law conversations that will then shift in terms of corporate policy and corporate so, rules. And that's exciting shift, to think about. We'll shift to work from home, WFH, to WFAA, work from anywhere, anytime. Yeah, anywhere, anywhere. anytime as well. Yeah, so the time dimensions in there as well, right? So again, right. When, you do, when you do your work, where you do your work, we don't care. Just do the work. Show us the outcome. And then the kind of, you know, like you suggest, the managerial or leaders that need to have high emotional intelligence yeah, to be able to challenge. coordinate, yeah. coordinate, support, engage, uh, understand the individual differences and, and be sort of that cross-cultural individual and multilingual agility as well as yeah, emotional intelligence yeah. agility. That's a high bar in terms of mm -hmm. that leadership skill that we would need to be developing. And I think we need to invest in more heavily. I recently did an EQI 2.0 Canadian uh, emotional intelligence um, certification and it's it's mind, mind blowing. And I think it's a really amazing tool, but uh, I think thinking forward, I'm trying to imagine all those implications for like you say, mm -hmm. work from anywhere, anytime as a, as a new strategy for diverse talent mobilization yeah. rather than yeah. managing top down. Right. I talk yeah. about mobilization, right? And helping those individuals be a part of that conversation and decision-making as well. So your final last message to our listeners today of what they should think about a little bit more or what you want to impart. I think I go back to what very similar what I just said, you know, consider that in the future of work, you, you want to be able to work with an employer that lets you work anywhere, anytime on your own, on your own pace as well. If not, go look, go work somewhere else, because I think um, you're going to find in the next few years that there is a lot more opportunities out there to find an employer who matches your preferred way of working and living. And if that's working from home, working remotely, working on a beach somewhere, you know, you'll be able to find somewhere to do that. And the companies that don't do that, they're going to be gone maybe in 10 years or 15 years. So look at the B grade talent, which means they'll be gone in 10 or 15 years as well. Wow, now that's a that's a warning shot across the bow there, right there. Yeah. <laughs> so, Why not? You. Yeah for these amazing insights Thank and for you. sharing yeah. all of your radical individuality and zone of genius um, and all of your diversities that really have, I think, shaped such an interesting conversation today and ideating real time. Um, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Jen. This has been enlightening. Thanks for joining us today. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity 
are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play, where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.